Welcome to Conversations on Wealth, a podcast dedicated to helping Canadians with your total financial picture. I'm Sarah Widmeyer, Director of Wealth Strategies at Richardson Wealth, and joining me today is Sean Sue, a Senior Tax Specialist at Richardson Wealth. Thanks for being here with me today, Sean. Thanks for having me, Sarah. We often remind our clients that tax strategies should be applied throughout the year to maximize their impact on your tax bill. Sean, why make Canadians who are snowbirds, for example, or spend time in the United States on an occasional basis, need to worry about U.S. taxes? Because there's not enough on the list of things to to worry about in life, right? (laughs) Um, But jokes aside, Canadians who snowbird or, or spend time in the U.S., have so many things to get into order, like making sure mail is going to the right place, making sure there's somebody available to take care of the home while they're away. Chances are U.S. taxes is not top of mind, especially because people do not think of having to pay tax or report income to a jurisdiction that they're not really domiciled in. But unfortunately, things are never that easy. People who spend time in the U.S. and even people who don't spend time in the U.S., but have U.S. assets as part of their wealth, should understand that they could become exposed to the U.S. tax system. And they need to understand what the various taxes are in the U.S., what they're applied on, and how they can manage them as part of their overall financial planning. And the topic of U.S. taxes is timely because with Biden now as president, there is a risk that more Canadians with some sort of connection to the U.S. will become exposed to the reach of Uncle Sam. Yeah. Well, I guess given what we've all just gone through, governments are going to be looking for more sources of income. So it shouldn't be surprising that the U.S. would expand their net. But we're not talking about a simple trip to Disney World, are we? We're not talking about no. a, you know, a two-week, three-week trip down to the beach. No, we're talking more long-term periods of time spent in the U.S. And I think we'll even talk about people who don't ever step foot in the U.S., but to their surprise, they're still exposed to to the U.S. taxes and they don't even know about it. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So how does a Canadian spending time in the U.S. become exposed to the country's tax rules? So in order to understand the extent to which you're exposed to taxes in the U.S., you need to first figure out whether you're considered a U.S. person. And that's because if you're a U.S. person, then you're subject to U.S. taxes on your worldwide income and worldwide assets, no matter where they're located or held. But if you're not a U.S. person, then you're only subject to U.S. taxes on income and assets that are considered to have a connection to the U.S. So so much more limited in scope. People who are not U.S. citizens can be U.S. persons if they're considered what are called resident aliens. It's a, it's a weird it's a weird way <laughs> to describe people, uh, but yeah, if you're not a citizen of the U.S., you're considered some sort of alien. And I and I think Biden is even looking to to replace the term alien with non-citizen because it can be viewed as derogatory. <laughs> but that aside, for Canadians who aren't U.S. citizens or green card holders. Becoming a quote-unquote resident alien under U.S. rules is usually a result of meeting what's called the substantial presence test, or SPT for short. So 
if you sp- if you spend extended periods of time each year in the U.S., you may have been told that you need to monitor the number of days that you're spending in the U.S. each year, and and that's in direct relation to this substantial presence test. And this test is a formulaic day count test that deems you to be a resident of the U.S. for tax purposes. So if you meet the substantial presence test, you would at first instance have to pay income tax on worldwide income to the IRS. So most snowbirds want to avoid this. So this is the one test in life that you actually want to fail. (laughs) Now, the counting of days in the U.S. under this substantial presence test appears simple on its surface. And what I commonly hear, and I'm, I'm sure my colleagues commonly hear from snowbird clients is some variation of the following statement, which is, as long as I don't spend more than six months in the U.S. each year, then I'm completely in the clear and I don't need to file anything with the IRS. And that sort of statement is a bit misleading because the substantial presence test is actually not that simple. It's not looking just at the number of days you spend in the current year in the U.S., but instead it's actually looking over a three-year period and you weight the number of days each year. And if you add those numbers up over the three years, and the total number of days is at least 183 days, which is where I think the six months comes from, you meet the substantial presence test and are a resident of the U.S. for that year. So if you follow the actual math and the formula, if you don't want to be considered a resident under the substantial presence test, then in reality, you can't spend more than 121 days each year in the U.S. So that's more like four months, not six months. Wow. So maybe you've already answered this a bit, but then how does a Canadian who spends too much time in the U.S. get out of the rules? So one thing would be to shorten your number to 121 days. Yeah. But what else? So the other main out, so if you consistently spend more than approximately four months year in and year out, so that you always meet this substantial presence test, the one out that you want to look at with your tax advisor is what's called a closer connection exception statement, lots of terms. And this out, to use this exception, you actually need to file something with the IRS. And this statement is where you essentially tell the IRS that, okay, I've spent enough days each year in the US to be treated as a tax resident under your day count rules. But notwithstanding that, I have a closer connection to Canada. Here's why. And please do not treat me as a resident of the US. So if you file the statement on time, IRS doesn't come back, then you're in the clear and you're not a resident of the U.S. So then I'm wondering if I've kept my time period to 121 days and I've filed my statement that I have closer ties to Canada than U.S., do I have any other U.S. tax and estate planning issues to consider? Yeah, so it's a bit complicated. So if you're under 121 days, year in and year out, then you don't meet the substantial presence test. So you don't even need to rely on this closer connection exception statement. Now, if you are over four months, then to get out of the residency rules, then you want to look at whether you qualify for this closer connection exception. And so there's two things to note with this special exception. So the first thing is that there is a separate 183-day test with this. So You can qualify for this exception as long as you spend less than 183 days in the current year. So another six-month test, but 
it's important to distinguish that it's separate from the 183-day threshold for the <laughs> substantial presence test. So very confusing. You lost me. Uh... <laughs> we'll, we'll summarize it very clearly. But uh, yeah, so there's a separate 183-day test. And then the other thing is you actually need to file the statement with the IRS on time. So even if you meet the conditions, but you don't file this form on time with the IRS, then you don't qualify. So you still have the issue where you meet the substantial presence test and you can't rely on this closer connection exception to get out. So really big picture in terms of counting your days, what a snowbird really should think about and should consider with respect to the number of days is as long as you keep your days year in and year out to a maximum of 121 days each year, then you're not a deemed resident of the U.S. under the substantial presence test. You don't need to file any statements with the IRS. Otherwise, if you're more than 121 days, then you can keep your U.S. days to a maximum of 182 days each year and still be considered a non-resident, provided that you file this closer connection statement every year to the IRS. So there's a little tiny, almost 60-day period where you can have time in the U.S., but still be considered a non-resident if you file the appropriate form with the IRS. So more paperwork involved. And some people don't realize that. They just think that as long as I am under six months each year, I'm, I'm fine from a tax perspective. Wow. And I guess every time you cross the border, there's a record of you crossing the border. Absolutely. And so right. we always recommend people to keep track of their days, yeah. have a travel log. And you know, even the days that you fly in and fly out, partial days are, at first instance, considered full days in the U.S. So you have to be careful with that as well. Wow. Wow. Really quite complicated, isn't it? Yeah. We always recommend people work with their tax advisors, but they need to understand that there's an issue or a risk exposure in the first place to know where to go for help. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is there's a great deal of personal accountability in terms of tracking your days and understanding the time limitations around those days. But then absolutely working with the tax advisor is critical to navigating this very complex, um, I don't know what else to call it other than complexity of rules, forms and rules and rules and yep. laws. And wow. So let's say I've made it very simple for myself and I don't travel to the US. I travel to France. I go to Europe. I'm not spending any time in the US. Do I still have to worry about US estate tax and tax issues? You do. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're here today to have our chat. Yeah. Yeah. So how? How? Yeah. Even if you spend a little vacation in Disneyland in the US or or you are a snowbird, but you carefully keep track of your days in the U.S., doesn't mean you're completely out of the clear when it comes to the U.S. tax system. And that's because the U.S. can still get their hands on non-residents if they own certain types of assets in the U.S. and they can charge their different taxes like an income tax, an estate tax, a gift tax. And if you own certain types of assets in the U.S., they can attract all of these taxes and one very natural example of this is U.S. real estate. So often new snowbirds may start off by renting, but as they 
spend more time in the U.S. and start enjoying, you know, spending a portion of their time each year in the U.S., they may start to think about potentially purchasing a property and setting some sort of route down there. And at our firm, we emphasize the importance of planning proactively rather than reactively. And this type of approach is important for all sorts of financial decisions, but it's especially important. I'm a bit biased when it comes to decisions like purchasing U.S. real estate. And the reason for that is because how you plan your purchase of an asset like U.S. real estate can carry U.S. tax implications throughout the entire life of owning that asset. So, for example, if you want to rent out the property for some time while you're back in Canada, that can create U.S. income tax implications on the rental income that you're earning. If you sell it in the future, you want to downsize, you don't want to spend any more time in the U.S. and you want to sell the property, that can also create U.S. income tax implications. If you want to gift the property or transfer the property during your lifetime, say to a child or to a friend, if you're really generous, that can create gift tax in the U.S. And if you die owning the asset, the U.S. can still get their hands on a piece of the pie because they have an estate tax that can be charged on the property. So this one asset that you enjoy can give rise to a number of different U.S. taxes. And on top of all of that, you're still resident in Canada. And so you still got to think of all the Canadian rules that can reach on the U.S. property. So it's a lot of tax issues that can arise with just one asset. And the other thing a lot of clients often don't think about is beyond tax. What if you spend time and maybe own property in the U.S. and suddenly become incapacitated or God forbid, you, you, you pass away. How will your Canadian estate planning documents, your wills, your powers of attorneys that you have hopefully drafted here, will they work in the state that you have this U.S. property in? Or is it better to have maybe separate wills and powers of attorneys done in the jurisdiction that you have U.S. property and to more easily facilitate decision-making and administration when these sorts of difficult decisions arise. So with all of that in mind, we often get asked about people who are in tune with these sorts of things, ask us, you know, how, how should I own property in the U.S. that I'm interested in? Should I buy it directly in my own name? Should I hold it jointly with my wife, with my husband? Perhaps a friend or a neighbor has mentioned, oh, put it in a corporation or put it in a trust. But do these ideas and options make sense in your unique circumstances? Are the tax savings worth adding additional complexity to you and your family? So there's a lot to think about. And, and we try to help our clients understand all of these options so they feel more comfortable and more educated when it comes to making these sorts of decisions that apply even if they don't, you know, yeah. aren't residents of the U.S. It's amazing, really. And I'm glad you bring up the firm because at Richardson Wealth, we do have a dedicated tax and estate planning team that is here to help guide clients through these 
types of scenarios and options. And Sean, you you are part of that team and we're very lucky to have you. Another question that I've got, and I had understood that if I have a portfolio of equities that are U.S. companies, U.S. equities, depending on the amount of assets that I hold in those securities, I may also be subject to some sort of U.S. tax. Yes, you're absolutely. Is that true? Yes, yes, it's true, <laughs> and that's where that's where I find a lot of the clients that I speak to get the most insulted and, and like most surprised. So, so what you're <laughs> what you're referring to is is the U.S. estate tax, and it often it comes as a surprise to Canadians because it applies even if people don't live in the U.S. or or have assets physically located in the U.S. So it seems really unfair that Canadians have to pay an estate tax to the U.S., to a country that they don't spend time in or or benefit from. And the estate tax is also unfamiliar to Canadians because we don't have an estate tax here in Canada, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. And our tax rules sort of pretend like you've sold your assets when you pass away and our country seeks to tax the underlying appreciation on the assets that you hold when you die. Whereas the estate tax in the US is different in that it applies just on the value of the of the assets that you hold rather than the underlying appreciation. So you could have bought a stock of a US company for $100 and if you die the next day, it's $100 that the US could potentially charge their tax on. So, hmm. so for Canadians, Wow. The U.S. estate tax applies on on what are called U.S. situs assets that you own on your death. And the word situs sounds like situated. So if we were to go back to that example of U.S. real estate, that is considered a U.S. situs asset. And it doesn't seem unreasonable that the U.S. could charge an estate tax on, on U.S. real estate because it's property physically located there. So I don't think it is necessarily unfair at its surface that an estate tax could be charged on an asset like U.S. real estate. But what you're talking about with U.S. stocks is another type of U.S. situs asset. And these U.S. stocks in your portfolio don't have to be in an account in in the U.S. They can be in Canadian accounts. They can even be in Canadian registered accounts. I was going to say, they could even be in an RSP. RSP or a TFSA, um, the U.S. rules look through registered accounts when it comes to these things. So uh, U.S. stocks um, in Canadian accounts uh, can expose you to the U.S. estate tax. And and so simply having exposure to the U.S. as part of having a diversified investment portfolio could lead to this exposure. And it can be a very expensive tax if if you're subject to it, because wow. again, it's it's on value, not on appreciation. And the top rate right now for U.S. estate tax currently is is forty percent. So, so forty percent wow. on value that's that's a big tax bill. So, Sean, then two quick questions because we could go on forever on this because yeah. it's really quite fascinating. Two quick questions then before we wrap up: Is there a threshold? So, like, if I have $50,000 in U.S. 
securities I'm subject or, or I'm okay? Is there a limit to which this kicks in? And then the second question is, what if those funds are held within a discretionary account where I'm not actually choosing the allocation or a mutual fund of U.S. equities? Does it matter? So maybe there's three quick questions before I let you go. Yeah, no, they're, they're great questions. So to your first question, there are several thresholds that you have to look at in determining whether you ultimately have to write a check or your executor ultimately has to write a check to the IRS. So uh, the first threshold is if you hold U.S. CITUS assets, the value of all of your U.S. CITUS assets, so U.S. stocks, U.S. real estate, all of them, if the value is under $60,000 and that's in U.S. dollars, then you don't have to worry about U.S. estate tax. Uh, don't have to file anything with the IRS. That's a very low threshold. It's very most, low. Yeah. Most, most people, people would hit it. Yeah. yeah, just on the U.S. stocks. So the second threshold is where we see a lot of sensitivity, and that's because it's the second threshold that Canadians can take advantage of, of is tied to an exemption amount that people in the U.S. could claim when they die and, and have to calculate whether they're subject to the estate tax. And that exemption amount is very sensitive to changes in, in political power. Mm. And so currently, the, the exemption is, is very high. It's, it's over 11 and a half million, I think specifically 11.7 million US dollars. So any Canadian that has a total net worth, so not just the US assets, a total net worth under 11.7 million would not have to pay a state tax to the IRS, even if a component of that total net worth is, is comprised of US assets. Now, the, the risk is that that exemption amount is going to drop because Biden's now the president. It's a different political party, and chances are they're going to be looking to reduce that exemption amount. And so what that means for Canadians is more and more Canadians will have an exposure to U.S. estate tax based on their total net worth to the extent that some of those assets consist of U.S. assets like U.S. stocks, U.S. real estate. And U.S. mutual funds or no, you're okay in a U.S. mutual fund? Yeah. So when we talk to clients about how to reduce their U.S. estate tax exposure, at least from an investment perspective, changing the type of product is one way. So instead of investing directly in, in shares of a U.S. company, you invest through like a Canadian mutual fund or an ETF that has, you know, that itself invests in the U.S. That's one way we can use investment products to still have exposure to the U.S., but without the potential cost of U.S. estate tax. But sometimes product, it can't solve everything. So sometimes you still want to have direct exposure to U.S. stocks um, because it makes sense from an investment perspective. So then we look at more complicated methods of structuring assets to maybe reduce the U.S. estate tax exposure. And that's where you need the right advisors that wow. can identify the issues in the first place so that you can figure out who you need to turn to to find planning opportunities and, and implement them. Yeah, 
we could go on and let's have another conversation on another day. It's really fascinating. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned working with a skilled investment advisor backed by a powerful team of tax and estate experts, very knowledgeable, is so critical as we navigate these rules. So I'd like to say, if you have any questions about some of the ideas or strategies from this episode, please reach out to your Richardson Wealth Advisor or your tax professional to discuss the impact of your own situation. And remember to follow Richardson Wealth on LinkedIn for the latest in wealth strategies, or visit our website for more tax planning ideas. Conversations on Wealth is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Sean, and join me again next time.